The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Another important decision point for the Biden administration with respect to um, potential accountability mechanisms that we haven't got into yet is whether it will support efforts by Senator Dick Durbin to fix the War Crimes Act so to provide for jurisdiction over perpetrators of grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions or other war criminals who come to the United States but who are not U.S. nationals and, and didn't commit crimes against U.S. nationals. It's long been the position of the executive branch that such jurisdiction is legally required by the Geneva Conventions. Current law does not have that. And so Senator Durbin um, has proposed to fix that loophole and expand the jurisdiction of the War Crimes Act. I'm Natalie Orpet, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 22nd, 2022. This week, we're bringing you a live recording of our recent Lawfare Live event titled Ukraine and the Future of National Security Law. I moderated a panel of experts, including Brian Finucan, Senior Advisor for the U.S. Program at Crisis Group, Shemen Keitner, Professor of International Law at UC Hastings, Todd Huntley, Director of the National Security Law Program at Georgetown Law, and Scott R. Anderson, Lawfare's own Senior Editor and a Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. We talked about a wide range of issues coming out of the current conflict in Ukraine, ranging from war crimes to sanctions to information operations, to the multidimensional role that technology is playing. We talked about what we're seeing now and what it may mean for the future of national security law and international law. Please note that because this was a live event, the audio quality is not always perfect. Thanks again to our co-hosts, Georgetown Law Center's National Security Law Society. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 22nd, Ukraine and the Future of National Security Law. Brian, I'd like to start with you. We're hearing a lot in this conflict ever since the beginning, really, when Russia's invasion was largely considered to be illegal under international law. Now we're hearing really horrific stories of civilian deaths and attacks on things like hospitals and schools, and things are being called war crimes. Um, So I'm hoping you can just talk us through what war crimes are, some of the basic definitions, and how what we are seeing and and what is being reported out of Ukraine fits into those definitions. Sure, Natalie. Um, Thanks to you and thanks to Lawfare and um, Georgetown University for hosting this event and inviting me to join. With respect to war crimes, what we're talking about here are serious violations of the law of war 
that entail individual criminal responsibility. And I want to emphasize that last bit. For the most part, when we're talking about violations of international law, we're talking about violations by state. And it entails responsibility for the state. War crimes are an exception to that. War crimes entail individual criminal responsibility for the perpetrator of the offense. And there's no single exhaustive list of war crimes, um, but they're codified in a number of treaties, such as the Geneva Conventions and the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Um, and they're also contained in uh, customary international law. As with other crimes, war crimes typically have an actus reus, that is the underlying act, and a mens rea, that is a required mental state. Uh, and with respect to war crimes, there's usually a, there's a required um, nexus or connection to an armed conflict. That is, to, that is, they have to take place in the context of or connected with um, ongoing armed conflict. Examples of war crimes include torture, rape, murder of civilians or detainees, directing attacks against civilians, directing attacks against civilian objects, um, or directing attacks against other simply protected objects such as hospitals, unlawful deportation of, or forcible transfer of civilians. This is illustrative and not an exhaustive list by any means. Under international law, there are legal doctrines that hold not only direct perpetrators responsible for war crimes, um, but also others who may indirectly contribute to the offense. You know, one example of these doctor this doctrine is um, the doctrine of command responsibility, under which uh, a commander who knew or should have known his subordinates were committing war crimes and failed to prevent or punish them may also be held criminally liable. And prosecuting more senior officials for war crimes generally requires evidence both relating to the crime base itself, uh, that is to say the underlying criminal conduct, you know, murder, torture, attacking civilians, as well as linkage evidence, which establishes the connection uh, between those higher-ups in a military or bureaucratic hierarchy with those underlying crimes. Um, Scott, I want to turn to you next. Um, you have been writing and podcasting um, a lot for Lawfare. I will put in a plug for everyone to follow up on Lawfare for our excellent content by Scott R. Anderson about sanctions. So I'm hoping you can start with a lay of the land. We're hearing a lot in the news about how unprecedented the degree and scope of the sanctions are. Um, can you just tell us about what the sanctions are, what the different categories of sanctions are, um, and who is implementing them and on which actors? Absolutely. You know, sometimes there's a lot of hyperbole around anything involving international affairs in the media. This is one case where there is really not much hyperbole. Uh, the sanctions reg regime that's being put against Russia by the United States and its allies is unprecedented. Nothing of the scale of the type of sanctions being imposed on them uh, has ever been tried, let alone been tried against the G20 economy. Uh, Russia had the 11th largest economy prior in the world prior to this conflict in the narrow time frame in which a bulk of these measures were applied, which is a matter of days, really over a two week span right after the conflict started, has ever been tried before. So it's really pretty virgin territory in terms of how these measures are be, being implemented. Some of them, some of them have been used to different scale before, some haven't, and then also the impact on them. And it's something that the Biden administration and its allies have been very carefully trying to manage and calibrate with a fair amount of success so far, although you know with some uh, perhaps unforeseen consequences. There's a lot of different threads of the sanctions, but I think the easiest way to think of it is kind of 
three or four main buckets. There's a lot of conventional blocking sanctions. These are sanctions that freeze assets for particular entities. Um, these have been applied against a lot of entities associated with the Russian government, against Russian oligarchs, uh, against Putin himself, and a number of Russian officials. And these are kind of conventionally what we think about as economic sanctions. We've then seen a bunch of sanctions that are being applied in a very targeted way towards an array of institutions that are meant to undermine very specific aspects of the, how those institutions operate. We have seen sanctions that attack the ability of major state-owned enterprises to access international debt markets that are essentially essential to fostering and funding their expansion and often just the maintenance of their core abilities for a lot of these large-scale modern institutions. So these are railway sectors, resource extraction, uh, shipping, you know, air, uh, air transport, uh, manufacturing different types of uh, equipment. Uh, all these things have been subject to sanctions, not just on their ability to get direct debt instruments, but even secondary markets for debt instruments for these, meaning that when people buy a share of a loan essentially to these companies and tries to trade it on the secondary market, those secondary transactions have been sanctioned. A pretty new step that's only been broken out a few times previously um, by the United States and its allies, at least to my knowledge. Another bucket that's related to that one, but is worth talking about separately, is targeting specifically foreign exchange reserves of the Russian Central Bank and certain closely related sovereign institutions. These are major reserves that countries keep in order to be able, of foreign currency and other kind of holdings, sometimes gold, sometimes other sorts of resources fit in a similar bucket, where people use them, countries use them to stabilize their currency, to stabilize their economy, and to facilitate foreign trade, among other purposes. Russia, in particular, had accumulated a ton of these after originally being subject to sanctions in 2014 over the Crimea crisis as an effort to insulate itself from a lot of the effects of global economic sanctions, in part on the assumption that the United States and its allies or whoever was trying to sanction Russia wouldn't be able to target those major foreign holdings en masse. That did not play out, actually. About half, I think by most projections, more than half of, of Russia's foreign exchange reserves were sanctioned um, by the United States and its allies pretty quickly after the conflict started. That, again, is a very dramatic measure. Central bank assets have periodically been sanctioned in other contexts, but it's usually a pretty severe measure. Um, it treads contrary to sovereign immunity protections and other protections that usually are given very robustly to central bank assets. So it's a major policy step. And the third, fourth, third or fourth major bucket, depending on how many buckets I'm, I'm pouring things into here, is worth thinking about is export controls. And this is actually, I think, one of some more interesting, innovative things that the United States has done. Pretty quickly, it established a bunch of export controls, basically saying we are not going to se sell or allow our companies domestically to sell a lot of sensitive technology to a long list of Russian companies, and really anything that kind of touches on Russia's defense sectors or a lot of other core sectors. Um, and that list has been growing more broadly. But perhaps more interestingly, they also said, look, we're not even going to allow anything that uses US like blueprints, plans, technology as components for foreign manufacturing to be sold to these entities. That itself is a pretty dramatic step, basically saying fold down the production line for things that might just have a sliver of licensed US technology, all are going to be subject to similar bans and enforcement measures if companies fail to comply with those bans. That again is a fairly novel step um, that's being applied in this context. And one where I think it raises some questions about, well, how enforceable is that going to be? Do we have the resources to do it? How do, how do we think about implementing it? Because it's not something that clearly to me has the infrastructure already in place to be enforced efficiently, although I think they're trying to stand it up quickly. 
those are the big buckets. And that together, again, given the fact they were applied to a major economy over the course of about two weeks, really makes this the most unprecedented set of sanctions we've ever seen uh, applied in, in history up to this moment. Okay, thanks, Scott. Todd, I'd like to turn to you next. Um, I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about information operations. Um, so to start, I would like you to define what that means exactly, because I don't know that it is a familiar term to everyone. And then I'd just like to, to hear your sort of overview of what we're seeing in that respect in Ukraine, in Russia, in the US, elsewhere in the world. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot, Natalie. And uh, thanks, Scott, and the other folks at Lawfare for uh, putting this on, and, and Sophie and Will at the National Security Law Society. We really have a great student organization here at Georgetown that sponsor a lot of great events. The definition of information warfare or information operations, that is a great question. And one I think that is still open for debate. Uh, you, you know, you've heard a lot of terms used or thrown around to refer to very similar activities, misinformation, disinformation, fake news, right, influence operations, in addition to information operations and information warfare. I, I like to look, I guess, at it this way, that misinformation and disinformation um, apply to discrete actions or messages. So kind of a message, a meme, you know, an activity that is conducted with misinformation being the unintentional spread of false information and disinformation, the intentional spread of, of false information. I think influence or information operations then really refers to the string together of those different activities to form a campaign uh, that has a specific goal in mind, that has a you know, a specific objective where the state is hoping or trying to get the target audience to act in some way or change their beliefs in some way that aligns with the state's overall goals uh, and purposes. So that's, I think, is to me, maybe the best way to look at it, kind of, we want to be able to describe and define the individual acts as well as the overall campaign that's being carried out. One thing I think is important to keep in mind is that this is, I don't know if it's the first, but it's the first large use of information operations in an international armed conflict in kind of the modern social media, digital age. We've seen, you know, acts in the past. We've seen certainly in uh, different conflict areas, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, other places in the Middle East the use of social media and the conduct, usually more one-offs, again, you know, use of disinformation, misinformation, individual uh, information activities in those situations, but largely the most, you know, mostly what we've seen or been thinking about is the use of those activities kind of in a peacetime or, you know, what might one might call the gray zone. So I think this is bringing up a lot of interesting issues uh, with the applicability of international law, specifically the law of armed conflict to some of these activities uh, in ways that we really haven't seen before or haven't seen that at this scale. I think it's important too to kind of break it down be, uh, by you know, who the state actor is, uh, kind of what their themes and messages have been, and you know, who are their target intended target audiences and what do they hope to accomplish with that? So, you know, I think uh, the conventional wisdom, at least at this point, is that Ukraine is winning the, winning the information war. I think actually it's too early to tell. 
Uh, who knows how long this is going to go on? Uh, and you know, like uh, the you know the cliche, the the victor gets to write the history. I think uh, you know, depending on who the victor is and how that's defined, might change how we look back at this. But uh, Ukraine has been very effective, right? They've used the themes of highlighting Russian aggression that they are the victims of this aggression. They've been highlighting the atrocities that have been committed by Russian forces, um, as well as the victories that they've accomplished or achieved over those Russian forces. And they've kind of overall had a message that they are not only defending democracy, but they're also defending the West, the European Union and NATO from you know, Russian aggression that if not stopped now will only spread across other parts of Europe. I think largely, right, their target audiences have been the international community trying to build support for their cause, to build support for those other countries to impose those sanctions that Scott uh, mentioned, and to try to get uh, military support and supplies from countries. They also have largely been targeting their own domestic audience, right, to bolster morale, to bolster the will to fight. Uh, and in both of those areas, I think they have done, you know, Super. It's been amazing how well they've done. Maybe it helps having an actor as the president, um, but uh, that's been uh, great. In some ways, they've also been targeting both the Russian military and the Russian civilian population, right, and trying to erode their will to support, erode their morale, which some of the ways they've done that has raised some interesting legal issues that maybe we'll talk about later. And so that's kind of the Ukrainian, I think, uh, approach. The U.S. obviously has been more in a, in a supporting role. Right. They've had themes that, uh, you know, Ukraine is winning. Russia is the aggressor. They've really been targeting, I think, mostly the international community, trying to build support again for the sanctions regime and further support uh, for Ukraine. In one way, I think they're trying to walk a very fine line of bolstering the Ukrainian morale to fight and international support, while also trying to ensure Rus Russia does not escalate the situation. And that I think is, you know, we've done all right so far. We'll see how it continues to go. I also think the one thing that we'll look back on and study and may raise some domestic issues has been the preemptive use of intelligence as part of an information operation, right? So the releasing of the, you know, satellite shots, other intelligence that showed Russia massing troops on the border weeks in advance, saying that they're about to invade, forcing Russia to deny it which then just eroded their credibility uh, further once the invasion started. Um, and then if you look at Russian information operations, it seems that they, you know, I guess if nothing else, maybe this has burst the myth that Russia is somehow this big invincible machine when it comes to information operations. They do not seem to have, you know, made much progress on the international front, maybe because they're focusing largely on the domestic front, trying to build popular domestic support ensure there's no um, you know, protest uh, disruption on the domestic side of things and make sure that uh, you know, the new conscripts that are reporting this month show up, uh, that the reservists when called up show up. So it may be that they're just focusing on a different domestic audience. But their credibility really, I think, took a severe blow when they were forced to deny there was going to be any military invasion. And then when it's very obvious that um, you know, they were the aggressors in this uh, armed conflict and you know, are committing atrocities. Thanks, Todd. Um, Shimen, you are an expert in just way too many things. Um, so I will give you the broad umbrella term of technology. So I guess 
because that means so many things, um, I'm interested in sort of how you would narrow the topic. What do you think are the most interesting, important, complicated issues relating to how technology is playing a role in this conflict? Thanks so much, Natalie, and, and thanks to everyone for convening this conversation. I mean, I, I find the topic fascinating, this idea of the future of national security law, right? Because as I think everyone in this call so far has emphasized, we have very robust frameworks for um, both the, you know, the decision to use force, the way in which force is used, uh, you know, they're being violated egregiously at the moment. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we certainly have those legal frameworks. I think what a big challenge has been is precisely applying them, uh, you know, to these circumstances on the scale, right, at, at which we're seeing just so many activities on so many different fronts. So on the technology front, it may be useful to think about uh, sort of four additional categories, uh, in addition to that really important category of information operations that Todd just walked us through so expertly. One that we've been seeing um, more reporting on in recent days uh, is what we might put under the label, generally speaking, of, of hacktivism, right? Which again, in and of itself isn't new, but because Russia is such a strong player, uh, Russia has, has often been uh, rather insulated from these kind of hack and leak operations, uh, the kinds of operations that it, by the way, perfected in particular in the lead up to the 2016 election in the United States. But we're starting to see reports from more and more civil society groups uh, that have actually been copying information from servers of various Russian entities, uh, public and private, as far as I can see. And what is actually done with that information uh, will depend to a large extent on journalists uh, and to the ability of people to make sense of the information that's been obtained. But I think to begin with, this idea that it is um, not just a government-to-government -government, uh, operation that we're dealing with, but that these new technologies, uh, social media, uh, the ability of basically anyone with a computer and some programming knowledge uh, who's probably younger than my generation <laughs> to figure out how to navigate some of these networks is really something that is uh, democratizing in a bad way, in the sense that we've been dealing for years with problems of, of cybercrime and ransomware, but also in a good way, because it really is empowering people in a decentralized way uh, to put some more pressure on Russia and Russian institutions. We also have uh, tremendous efforts going on as we speak to preserve digital evidence of the kinds of crimes and atrocities that Brian started us off uh, describing. And, you know, the Again, the idea of digital evidence of war crimes is not new. We have had extensive documentation in Syria and elsewhere. Um, but as some of you may know, we also had a real problem in some of those conflicts with social media companies, algorithms, uh, essentially deleting very important evidence because it triggered uh, warnings for things like graphic content, not surprisingly. So I think we have a much more systematic effort now to uh, record, preserve, uh, and by some groups even uh, try to, to copy and protect with blockchain technology to help uh, guard against subsequent allegations of fabrication manipulation. Uh, so just reams and reams of evidence, which again uh, poses challenges to the extent that it is decentralized, uh, but also creates opportunities. 
Then we have the, the state-led uses of technology, if those were the, the sort of citizen-led. Uh, and we have, uh, of course, in every war, new technologies on the battlefield. And in particular, as Todd mentioned, in the information sphere, where the United States and other NATO partners are trying to trod carefully, trying to tread carefully uh, this line between supporting Ukraine, supporting the Ukrainian people, uh, offering assistance, offering support, but not uh, yet anyway, entering into an armed conflict directly with Russia. Uh, so too, in this area of providing assistance, technology, uh, maybe weapons that are uh, to a certain extent self-directed, that help a Goliath, uh, a David fight a Goliath, uh, is something that that we're seeing more of. And of course, a lot of this is publicly reported, you know, pursuant to congressional authorizations and so forth. But uh, I think this is certainly an area to watch. Uh, and then finally, although certainly not least, uh, we've heard a lot of talk about cyber operations generally, and uh, certainly to the extent that any country or group used uh, digital means to create what we might call physical or kinetic effects, right, to blow up a target. Uh, I think we wouldn't really be thinking about any sort of new legal categories. We would just treat that uh, the way we treat any other use of force uh, or use of armed force. But we have for years now been seeing operations and activities below that use of force threshold. Uh, and we can certainly get into in discussion uh, sort of how to define that threshold. Conversations have been ongoing both within and between governments and members of civil society, again, for many years. But there, there is a, a large degree one can expect of activity below that use of force threshold uh, going on in Ukraine, in the United States, in Russia, in neighboring countries. And uh, this, this level of persistent engagement uh, below that use of force threshold, much of which you know, we may never actually see, but we know is ongoing, uh, requires legal frameworks to contain it. And uh, those are frameworks that are, are being discussed, uh, have been discussed, and will, will no doubt form uh, the topic of conversation and analysis for many years to come. Excellent. Thank you. So Brian, I want to come back to you, um, starting with um, something that Shemen uh, mentioned that I think has been of great interest to me and I think a lot of people, which relates to all of the evidence that seems to be around in an unprecedented manner of war crimes. So as she said, there, there are complications to the collection and the preservation of them, um, how social media companies fit in, but also I, I know there are issues with respect to how they will be usable or not in an evidentiary manner in war crimes trials to come. So using that sort of as, as an entry point, um, I'm hoping you can talk to us more broadly about how war crimes accountability mechanisms are used, um, what the fora are for trying war crimes for for trying to bring accountability under that framework and and what you see as the the biggest lessons coming out of what we're seeing now right in terms of where war crimes trials might occur in the context of what we're, the atrocities we're seeing in ukraine first and foremost um, in ukraine itself you know the prosecutor general uh, for ukraine has publicly said that she has uh, thousands of open cases and so obviously 
you know, Ukraine who has jurisdiction is the state where these atrocities are occurring. Uh, the victims are Ukrainians. They are closest to the evidence, closest to the witnesses. So that's the natural for uh, for what was likely to be the one majority of any potential war crimes trials that come out of this conflict. Second, another um, a number of European states have already indicated that they are investigating or will be investigating potential war crimes in Ukraine, um, either on the basis that their nationals may have been victims of uh, war crimes or on the basis of universal jurisdiction. And so you've heard um, statements from France, um, from Poland and, and other states. And then third, and there's been considerable discussion of this, probably um, not necessarily um, consistent with the role that it will eventually play, but it, but it isn't necessarily a, a significant actor in the space, the International Criminal Court. Uh, Ukraine is not a party to the International Criminal Court, but it has accepted the jurisdiction of the court with respect to the, the conflict. And it, there have been referrals from over 40 um, parties to the uh, Rome Statute and the International Criminal Court supporting um, the investigation by the court of atrocities in Ukraine. And the, the prosecutor for the International Criminal Court has indicated that he is, has open investigation into what's going on in Ukraine and has visited Ukraine. But I think at the same time, it's, it's worth first taking a step back and trying to put accountability efforts that are underway right now in Ukraine in a, in a context and, and, and distinguish them explicitly from things that we've seen in the past and, and um, prior war crimes trials that people may be familiar with. Um, and I'm thinking particularly here of the post-World War II Nuremberg trials, and, as well as the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia that was set up in the 90s. And just like, you know, so everybody is crystal clear on this, none of those prior accountability efforts uh, were targeted towards a country like Russia, which is a major nuclear power and a permanent member of the UN Security Council. And further, Russia, unlike some prior examples, has not been militarily subjugated and is unlikely to be militarily subjugated. So this is not analogous to what happened after World War II. Unlike the ICTY, the Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, um, there is no UN Security Council resolution obligating cooperation by states. Um, that's for obvious reasons, i.e. that um, Russia would have vetoed any such resolution. And so this, the situation today is very different um, than what, was, what the world faced in 1945 or in the 90s. I just want to add as well that you, you've heard some rhetoric from you know, world leaders, including President Biden, um, calling Vladimir Putin a war criminal. I will say that that sort of language is unhelpful in at least two respects. If the United States or and other countries are going to support accountability efforts, it's unhelpful for their governments to prejudge the outcomes of them. Um, but more significantly, adopting language either that either explicitly or implicitly calls for regime change in Russia uh, is potentially dangerous and could lead to unintended escalation of the conflict in. Ukraine, which the White House has thus far widely um, sought to avoid. Okay, um, so shifting gears a minute um, back to you, Scott, on, on sanctions, just as a quick baseline, can you talk us through the legal mechanisms, like what are the actual legal frameworks that permit sanctions, what are the th authorities on the U.S. side, and then uh, after, after that, just open comments on what you think are the most relevant lessons coming out of what we're seeing now as we're looking to the future. 
Sure, absolutely. Uh, on the domestic law side, it's actually shockingly straightforward. Uh, the International Emergency Economic Power Act of 1977 is a super, super broad delegation of authority to the executive branch in situations of a national emergency, which the president can declare with some fairly minor procedural steps uh, and then renew on an annual basis. The Biden administration uh, started a new national emergency in relation to Russia earlier in 2021 uh, through Executive Order 14024. That has been the basis for the vast majority of these sanctions. Um, there are also some, uh, there's a separate executive order for sanctions relating to Luhansk and Donetsk specifically that was implemented right after the invasion of those territories. Everything subsequent to that, I believe everything has been subject to 14024, which again, basically says there's a national emergency over Russia being a bad actor internationally in a variety of regards, even before the invasion of uh, Ukraine. And they're using that same authority now and essentially lets the executive branch regulate most types of economic transactions that have a foreign nexus. So you have a foreign actor or foreign interest in the property. That's the kind of jurisdictional hook. Also, there has to be some nexus between that person and a threat to US economy and US interests. An important note here uh, worth flaking or flagging, excuse me, about AIPA is that AIPA really provides the authority to sanction or freeze entities uh, or financial transactions. Basically, you're blocking transactions. You're saying, we're going to freeze these in place. You have some ability to dictate how they're controlled, where they're held, but you can't necessarily seize or claim title to those assets or convert them to a third party. That was an authority under a predecessor statute, the Trading with the Enemies Act, um, that is still, still on the books, but not used as widely as AIPA anymore. There, AIPA has one amendment that was adopted after the 9-11 attacks that allows for seizures in the cases of where there's United States is at war with another entity, but that hasn't been invoked in this context, has been fairly rarely invoked uh, really in the last 20 years since it's been on the books. So it's a, it's a more limited authority. That comes into some current debates, which we can get to in a second, about how these authorities are being used. The only other authority that's really in play here on a domestic standpoint uh, is the uh, Export Control Act, a separate statute that allows a lot of regulations of different types of licenses. Ironically, the Export Control Act has lapsed at numerous times over the last 30 years, 20 years, uh, and actually was IPA was used to substitute it and basically simulate the law uh, when the ECA actually lapsed, uh, lapsed um, but it is currently on the books. So that's the basis for the export control measures uh, that I mentioned before. Um, a similarly fairly not quite as broad and somewhat more um, procedurally complicated delegation of authority to the president, but a fair amount of flexibility. In terms of what is interesting coming out of this, there's a lot of interesting policy questions and interesting legal questions. Um, one of the some of the big legal questions uh, I would note are um, one is this question of how do you can you seize assets? There's a lot of calls coming from a variety of circles of people saying, "Hey, can we actually take some of these Russian assets that we have frozen on the book somewhere, whether they are?" Russian state assets or the private assets of people affiliated with Russia? And can we take these and sort of convert them to some other use, get them to Ukraine to help fund their reconstruction? Frankly, you've seen a lot of op-eds and other short pieces suggesting this would be relatively easy and straightforward. I think most of those are wildly optimistic. It actually raises a whole lot of domestic international law questions, constitutional questions. Uh, and I should note, of course, uh, foreign allies are applying these same sanctions regimes, have each have their own separate laws for implementing them. Some of them are actually adopting new laws, but most of those, while they don't have the same constitutional questions we have, they have various human rights obligations that prevent them or domestic constitutional obligations that prevent them from simply seizing property very easily without having some sort of legal predicate. So there's a big legal question there about how exactly you implement that. There's also a legal question around the enforcement of these things, I think, what sort of authorities are necessary, particularly as these sanctions 
extensions become, or if they do in fact become very long-term, if there's a long-term effort to isolate Russia economically. The export controls I mentioned before, there is an enforcement question there. You know, Conventional economic sanctions are often enforced by virtue of the fact that you have a lot of international financial institutions that face punishment if they fail to implement uh, and comply with sanctions measures. The United States simply says, here's a list of people who are sanctioned, and it's up to those companies to uh, comply or else they can face their own punitive measures. And because of that, they have over many years developed a fairly effective enforcement, internal enforcement practice and mechanisms. That doesn't exist in other industries and sectors. And so, uh, you know, you think about all the different types of industries involved in export controls. Uh, it's not clear to me that you have those sorts of mechanisms. The State Department, the Commerce Department, they're involved in monitoring how different technologies and material is used uh, that are subject to these licenses. My limited experience from that has been that it's a little bit spotty uh, and not always entirely efficient. And so there's a question here like, well, how, what sort of new legal measures do we need in place and authorities do we need in place to ensure these are enforced effectively? A lot of the same question goes for conventional sanctions too, because a lot of the times if you have are cutting off conventional trade routes, people might be turning to the black market or other efforts to kind of obfuscate their sorts of transactions. That can be at the personal level, like oligarchs hiding their assets through foreign bank holdings and other sort of anonymous entities, or it can be at the state level about Russia trying to get access to certain technology or equipment um, through channels that uh, either don't show up on these enforcement mechanisms or somehow able to evade them. There's gonna end up being a kind of cat and mouse games as the United States and its allies develop more efforts to try and figure out how to enforce these measures. A lot of these are intelligence and law enforcement efforts, but there is, in some areas, I suspect there's something like a legal authorities question, or maybe a law and policy question about how to approach enforcement to give the right incentive to these industries. So they start setting up their own compliance mechanism, the processes, if people are gonna borrow from the, the more conventional sanctions context. The bigger question around all this though really is kind of a policy question. And it fundamentally gets down to this idea of how far can we push this? The reason why sanctions are effective is because even Russia, for all the problems it's had over the last 10 years, uh, particularly the last eight to 10 years, with the West and with the United States, still was pretty integrated with the global economy. It tried to ratchet it back, but it could only claw back so much without killing its economy domestically prior to this invasion. And that means that these sanctions really have bite against them. It's a slower bite than some people might like, you know, as an immediately stop the military endeavor. But just this week, we're getting some real reports about um, openness among Russian economists saying, oh, our logistics routes are nuts and we are running out of the core supplies. People haven't felt the actual bite yet, but it's coming down the pike very, very quickly. Uh, I think we're about to see, you know, a lot of the economic consequences really spike up in Russia over the next couple of weeks. At least that seems to be the, the reports from these folks as the consequences build. But eventually, if the United States and its allies use these pressures too much, it gives a strong incentive for countries that know they may be on the other side of political issues to try and detach and develop their own parallel mechanisms that aren't subject to that sort of control. So if you end up with that sort of balkanization of a global financial system or the global economy, you know, does that mean that these measures are as effective or what other measures do you go to? That's part of why you've seen such innovation in this regime, why you see the United States and its allies going to foreign exchange reserves. They are innovating and pushing harder because Russia had already insulated itself from a lot of more conventional measures. But how far down that road can you actually go? Where is the end point where you ultimately can't really exercise that much economic influence over these other parties? 
And that feeds back to his other question is saying, how much is this a one-time thing? You know, over the next dispute where Russia has, if Russia weathers the next 10 or 20 years or however long this isolation period lasts, or maybe it's just one or two years, are they going to reintegrate and make themselves subject to this again? Or are they going to stay decoupled? Maybe as a prior state, maybe a lot poorer and a lot less pleasant place to be than they were before this conflict, but a lot more able to resist economic pressures. And then the question becomes, well, what other source of pressure do you have to bring? And the question gets shoved to other realms away from economic leverage, which has really become the United States and, and Europe's main foreign policy to a lot of areas and particularly around this context. Great. Thanks. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. 
It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Todd, so Brian and Scott have talked about these two areas that are very much topics of conversation and, and really prominent in how we are thinking about the conflict and how it's playing out. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little, uh, a little bit more in depth, building on what you said before about how each country's and the international community more generally are messaging about these things. So how is um, Ukraine promoting the notion that Ru that Russia is committing war crimes. How is it encouraging the use of sanctions regimes? And on the flip side, how is Russia combating those two things? Great question. And as, you know, as you said at the beginning, right, we could spend probably a couple of hours just talking about that that fact alone. Uh, I think the one interesting thing to look at it, you know, looking at those different uh, messaging approaches, uh, builds on something that Shannon had mentioned. Because now again, you know, the messaging is not limited to state actors. You have, you know, the equivalent of the hacktivists on the messaging side. You have individual citizens now uh, able to, um, you know, potentially have a strategic effect on the information environment. You have non-governmental organizations weighing in on it and, and using their own messaging. And oftentimes these could potentially be at cross purposes or conflict with the messaging the state is trying to get out. Um, so I think, you know, it's a real challenge for, for the uh, state actors in this environment to try to make sure they have a coordinated, consistent message building on the themes that they want to promote and, uh, and message. Uh, so that's one thing I think they really have a challenge in doing. You know, so far, again, Ukraine, I think, because of the success of their uh, messaging and, and, you know, portraying them themselves as the victim and Russia as the aggressor, right, the, the people in Ukraine, some of the other organizations providing aid in Ukraine, it's just natural that their messaging is supporting the Ukrainian government messaging. Maybe that has something to do because it's the truthful message, I don't know. But um, it certainly seems like, again, that is allowing Ukraine to um, kind of bolster the strength of their messaging and the reach of their messaging. On the Russian side, it seems, again, like they have, have been trying 
uh, to build on that. You've seen uh, videos coming out of some of the atrocities uh, in Bucha and some of the other areas where they have been trying to place the blame on Ukrainian forces for that. I think one of the interesting things, again, was the you know they tried to message that the bodies that were portrayed in the street in those photos on March 31st, April 1st, the people had to have been killed by the Ukrainians because their forces left Bucha on March 29th or March 30th. Um, and there were no pictures of them before that. And then I think it was the New York Times came out with some drone footage that they had obtained or some satellite footage showing the bodies in the same places days before the Russian forces had uh, had left. So I think it's interesting again the the overwhelming of, you know amount of information that is available has to I think lead the states who are messaging to be a little careful because you don't know what else is out there and it's going to be presented to counter your message. Um, so I think that is um, you know something that that again Russia is finding itself. Uh, you know, perhaps battling uphill or, or, you know, again, maybe their resources are just so focused on the domestic audience uh, that they're not worrying about this so much. Part of it is probably just hubris, right, that they have been so successful in the past, right? They, 2014, you know, the takeover at Crimea, their intervention in the Donbass, the shooting down of MH17, you know, they just threw a lot of different things up against the wall. The, uh, you know, I think the one term uh, that's been used to portray it or describe it as the fire hose of uh, false uh, information, right? That they just throw so much up there that you don't know what to believe. And th there's a book by Peter Pomerantsev that I think is, uh, you know, kind of portrays that, right? And it's uh, nothing is true, uh, but everything is possible that they have taken the approach just to confuse the information, you know, make it so nobody really knows what the truth is or not. And I think that is the one thing that, you know, to counter that kind of uh, influence operation, the use of disinformation in that way, you know, we have to try to figure out a way to do that, right? Whether that is through transparency, you know, moves to, to increase transparency of messages and messengers on social media, labeling of information, labeling of, of um, you know, sources of information. But that is something I think that is not, um, that's one thing that will continue after this, I think, that we can continue to, to see as being an issue. Okay, thank you. And Shaman, I think building on that, um, because it, it referred back to something you said in your first response um, about, as you put it, the democratization that technology brings. So for messaging, for even things like Scott was saying, evading sanctions by coming up with clever ways of hiding your money or your assets, what do you, what do you think are the ways in which we're going to need to think about how technological advances are, are sort of being used now to for ill and, and try to address those going forward? Thanks, Natalie. And I will also um, see we're starting to get questions in the chat, which is great. And I'll, I'll try to answer the first one that's come in. So I think technology, and this will sound cliche, but I think it's true. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, when we think about this war, uh, and I know the administration has taken pains to say that we're doing everything to avoid World War III. Uh, I believe it was Fiona Hill, though, who's, who suggested uh, in some of her public remarks that maybe we're 
already there uh, to a certain extent. Uh, we are seeing, as Scott said, these economic tools being brought to bear against uh, what was the world's largest, uh, 11th largest economy. We're seeing, as Brian said, uh, this level of atrocities that, again, unfortunately, is not unprecedented, but there's a degree of, of brazenness and wantonness uh, that is, is continuing seemingly undeterred by all of these accountability mechanisms we've discussed. And then as Todd said, there's just such a proliferation of, of information uh, that can, again, be, be helpful, but also obscure to a large extent um, what's going on. So uh, similarly on, for example, uh, you know, technologies of whether it's war fighting or uh, asset hiding, on the one hand, uh, there are so many more opportunities uh, and it's making work very difficult, I'm sure, for an already overstretched uh, Treasury Department, for example, on the sanctions side. On the other hand, you know, I'm reading a book now about code breakers in between World War One and Two who were literally deciphering code by hand in notebooks with pen and paper. And so the, the, there are advantages, right, to, to our faster processing capabilities. The fact, I think, as, as Todd pointed out, that we can counter some disinformation with, you know, drone footage. I think the, the two maybe broader points that I'll make are, number one, about the nature of law, to come back to our central question, which is I think that lawyers traditionally try to put things into neat categories, right? I mean, that, that's what we do. That's what we're trained to do. We're trained to analyze and you know, distinguish this precedent from that precedent and this set of facts from that set of facts. And what we're seeing here are a lot of blurry lines. Uh, I think some of them, to come back to this use of force threshold question I mentioned earlier, maybe strategically blurred or at least blurry to preserve some room for maneuver, uh, for example, in, in the area of, of cyber operations. On the other hand, uh, as others have, have certainly observed, this isn't a unique <laughs> or insight, uh, the, the blurrier things are, uh, and to Todd's point, the less clear even it is sort of where different messages, uh, or might I say cyber operations are coming from, uh, the greater I think there is a chance for, for miscalculation uh, and therefore escalation. So, so the broad point here is, you know, thinking about when is clarity a good thing and, and when is blurriness, you know, strategically useful, but maybe also problematic. Then the second thing is, I think to, to Scott's larger point, you know, the effectiveness of law in constraining a permanent member of the Security Council. And uh, quite frankly, it does not seem to be particularly effective. Uh, this idea of economic integration that Scott mentioned does give us leverage. If this ends up being the major way of, of trying to push back on Russia, then, uh, you know, it may be one of these use it and lose it, right? Uh, if if the, the net result is creating these separate uh, economic spheres, uh, it also seems that there's you know likely to be and already is you know, domestic Russian resentment. This is yet another injury inflicted by the West uh, so that the ire of the, the Russian people may, may well be turned uh, towards the West rather than towards President Putin. Uh, on the, the blurriness side of things, so to, to sort of bring out the question, you know, number one, uh, and this is from Harry Pullman, you know, what about the United States' 
interpretations uh, and, and the question says revisions, but I'm, I'm substituting the term interpretations of the laws of war during the, the war on terrorism. Does this present challenges of consistency regarding how law applies uh, in, in the Russian conflict in Ukraine? And on that point, uh, I would say, again, a more a broader point, but maybe Brian and others will, will weigh in more in a more granular way. The United States, of course, is also a veto-wielding member of the Security Council, and I think we have used that perch to read elasticity into legal concepts that maybe they didn't uh, weren't originally intended to have, uh, not always with uh, either full awareness or uh, at least sort of full uh, reckoning with the boomerang effect that such elasticity uh, is bound to have. And so uh, I'm not sure there's a, a specific circumstance uh, in which I see that operating at the moment, but I think it certainly could going forward. On the other hand, some, some maybe a little glimmer of good news. Uh, so the question also refers to uh, today's report that Putin announced a ballistic missile test as a warning to the West. And again, we're, you know, we're all trying to keep up as best we can and all have different information sources. But I also read uh, with respect to that, that the United States was informed of this test ahead of time, which to me suggests at least that some of that clear communication that Todd was referring to is happening, uh, which to me again was a, a small relief in a sea of you know, agony, but, but some of these you know, deconfliction protocols that, that have been in place, they're in place for Syria, they've obviously been in place uh, at least since 2014, if not longer, in Ukraine, uh, really are what we're relying on at the moment uh, to make sure that neither side inadvertently perceives the other one uh, as crossing this line that neither of them have, have explicitly defined. So it really is this complicated law and policy dance that we're all sort of watching unfold in real time. Brian, Scott, Todd, I want to give you a, a chance to respond as well to the question we received from our guest. Any one of you? I was going to say, um, not so much on legal interpretations as much, but I think we, um, the United States finds itself at an inflection point, having wound down many aspects of the war on terror and having the ICC, having the prosecutor having indicated that he no longer intends to pursue investigation against U.S. personnel with respect to um, the situation in Afghanistan, the U.S. finds itself in a different posture towards the International Criminal Justice Project and the International Criminal Court um, than it did during much of the war on terror. And, I, and so I think you might see a, a potential shift, and it's a decision point for the uh, Biden administration, as to whether it wants to support in word or deed um, the ICC's accountability efforts in Ukraine. So I think you may, you may be shifting out of the war on terror antipathy or you know, ambivalence towards um, international criminal justice and back towards something um, resembling the position the US, US was in, the, in, in the mid 90s when it helped establish the tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda um, to mete out justice for uh, wartime atrocities. The only thing I would add to that, just to put a slightly sharper edge on it, is I actually think in this area, there is one express policy where the Biden administration has found itself in a tricky position, and that is exactly regarding the ICC, in that its position that reiterated when it rescinded the Trump era sanctions against the ICC, although I think this was a pre-existing position, was that 
their view is that the ICC should not, I wasn't ever sure whether it was a legal or policy position exactly, but their position was that the ICC should not, for legal or policy reasons, exercise jurisdiction over the nationals of a state that was not a state party of the ICC. That was a reaction, uh, I think strongly suspected, or never exp expressly said to the investigation into Afghanistan by the ICC, where there's always been this concern that it's going to entail U.S. soldiers and U.S. soldiers' actions. But that is a real problem when you take the position that the ICC should be investigating Russian soldiers' or actions in Ukraine. I actually haven't seen the Biden administration expressly square that circle yet. Uh, my guess is that they will find some other way to caveat or narrow that earlier statement. But uh, in at least that one spot on a policy that does have to do with dealing with the aftermath of the kind of war, global war on terrorism, the Biden administration is going to have to find some way to tweak its position on that to some extent. My point isn't so much, you know, does it somehow conflict with uh, some of the past positions the U.S. has taken, but um, the formation of law or the development of the law in this area going forward, I think, you know, as Shunen mentioned, you know, this uh, communication before the ballistic missile launch, uh, letting the U.S. know that this was taking place. If you think, or if you remember back early in the war, there were these two deep or maybe cheap fakes. Uh, one, uh, President Zelensky supposedly telling Ukrainian soldiers to put their weapons down and surrender. One of President Putin supposedly telling the Russian soldiers the same thing. Uh, they, were, they were pretty bad. They were very obviously cheap fakes. But you can see at some point in the future that technology developing to the point and being used to deliver a fake strategic message by a national leader that could very well escalate the situation. So instead of a you know, back channel communication letting the US know, maybe there's a pu very public communication by what appears to be President Putin declaring that they're going to launch nuclear missiles or about to use nuclear weapons. And you know, obviously escalating the situation, um, you want to make sure that that channel remains uh, not only open, but also credible so that you can try to, you know, engage in that strategic communication and try to, you know, either de-escalate the situation or achieve some, you know, some sort of peace. Brian? Yeah, I just wanted to elaborate a, a bit further on the great point that, um, that Scott raised there about the U.S. position on the ICC exercising jurisdiction over the nationals of non-state parties. Scott, uh, the ambiguity there over whether it is a legal or a policy position is uh, possibly intentional. Um, once upon a time back in the Clinton administration, um, the U.S. articulated it as a legal position. Over time, it's evolved um, and it seems to have dropped most of the legal arguments, which were often unconvincing to our interlocutors, um, US, U.S. interlocutors, both in the ICC and foreign um, counterparts. Um, and so now it's couched uh, in ways that can be understood as being purely in terms of policy. But that is, as you point out, it is a decision point. What will the, the Biden administration do with respect to this position? It could simply remain silent. You know, it could internally hold this position, but, it's, but not feel compelled to go out there and essentially act as defense counsel for Russian personnel and by advancing this argument. Um, it could formally renounce it. Um, so it has a range of potential options. I, my suspicion is that they will find some um, pragmatic way to muddle through another important decision point for the Biden administration with respect to um, potential accountability mechanisms that we haven't gotten into yet is whether it will support efforts by Senator Dick Durbin to fix the War Crimes Act so to provide for jurisdiction over perpetrators of grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions or other war criminals who come to the United States, but who are not nas U.S. nationals and, and didn't commit crimes against U.S. nationals. 
it's long been the position of the executive branch that such jurisdiction is legally required by the Geneva Conventions. Current law does not have that. And so Senator Durbin um, has proposed to fix that loophole and expand the jurisdiction of the War Crimes Act. Just to piggyback on Brian there, I think that closing that gap is long overdue. Uh, and actually Beth von Skock, who was uh, recently confirmed as the ambassador at large for global criminal justice has a, an excellent uh, book chapter detailing sort of the history of that and, and how it can and pretty straightforwardly be fixed. And of course, uh, since this is a lawfare event, uh, you've also got uh, blogging on, on the Lawfare blog about the potential use even of the War Crimes Act as is, uh, although in my view, like Brian's, uh, it, it's too circumscribed at the moment. I think the other maybe point to raise uh, that relates also to the, the way that the U.S. is navigating this, and again, we, we've obviously centered the U.S. in this discussion because we're, we're sitting in the United States and have experience in, in the U.S. government. I think the uh, another difficult balancing act here is, on the one hand, uh, this administration came to power sort of promising partners and allies that, that the United States was back. Uh, but it's also quite clear to me that we can't be back uh, necessarily in the way we were, say, in the triumphalist 80s and 90s, because uh, not only do we not necessarily have the, the capacity or the desire domestically, to project, again, U.S. force and ideals worldwide. But we've also, I think, belatedly recognized that that's not always necessarily welcome, that a lot of the way in which this conflict is being framed is very much sort of Russia versus the West. And I think to Scott's point earlier about isolation, the question is, do we do we embrace that characterization and root for the rest, the West to win? Um, or is there some way still of, of kind of co-opting and folding Russia and China, for that matter, into a world order that is, you know, polycentric, that is not a single superpower world, but that nonetheless is one in which we can have um, some assurance of a baseline degree of, of safety and security. And I think what is so devastating to all of us is, uh, you know, if anyone had the illusion that there were, you know, geographic areas of relative safety and stability in the world. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully because I think it is so important to recognize that there are many parts of the world in which that has never been the case. You know, uh, we can talk about ongoing devastation in Yemen and Syria. Uh, obviously, with the U.S. pullout, you know, both with the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, the Afghan people were subjected to really atrocious treatment in a lot of respects. And now with the withdrawal of US troops, we have different kinds of atrocious treatment. Uh, not trying to equate the two, but it's just that they seem to have not had control of their own destiny for a very, very long time. So, you know, that's, I think, thinking longer term about the role of law and the role of national security law. So again, bringing a bit of a US focus, you know, which government departments kind of have their eye on the longer term picture here? Uh, how are we coordinating efforts both within government and with our partners and allies to, to work toward a world in which, you know, to Scott's point, we, we haven't run out of options the next time this occurs. And I think fundamentally the post-World War II framework is one in which uh, the UN Charter Article 2.4 says uh, that a threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any other state is unlawful. And we have seen that flouted. Again, it's not the first time it's been flouted by Russia. It's not the first time it's been flouted by 
other countries in the post-World War II period. But at the moment, uh, I think that the looming threat of potential nuclear escalation uh, is really boxing us into places where uh, it's very uncomfortable to be. And, and we're really going to need to put some long-term strategic thinking into place to figure out uh, how to, to come out on the other side of this with um, stable protections for, for people you know, in, in as many parts of the world as possible. Right. I want to ask a sort of closing question um, that I'd like each of you to answer in just a couple brief sentences, um, because I, I want to put myself back in law school, oh, those many years ago, and thinking from the perspective of a student who is reading a national security casebook or an international law casebook, what do you see in your relative areas that you've been talking about today where you're on a topic, you would put a big asterisk in front of it and say, this is what you're reading about here. The current conflict in Ukraine is either exposing significant gaps or problems or limitations of this legal framework that's being discussed right now in this casebook, or this is showing something that needs to be changed or it's being mooted. Any anything like that where you would just as you're as you're teaching a class or as you're you're thinking about someone learning these topics anew, what what is something that's going to be, you know, perhaps different in future casebooks? Uh, Brian, can we start with you? I think one of the, the um, outcomes of this conflict will be a further strengthening of the, the expectation that there should be accountability for wartime atrocities. But that would be the expectation. I also think it's useful for folks and necessary folks to recognize the reality and moderate their expectations. Um, when it comes to war crimes trials, including in this conflict, it's likely to be the case that we're going to be operating over a very long time frame. Um, it, could be, it could take some time before anyone stands trial anywhere um, for atrocities that are taking place in Ukraine. At the same time, uh, perpetrators may face justice many decades from now. And I think it's also useful to think about the utility of international criminal justice and how it does and does not work. I think it's probably unlikely to expect any significant deterrence to come from accountability efforts currently underway. So I think it's useful to keep in mind um, what are reasonable expectations to come from of this international criminal justice project that the US and others are embarked on and its limitations for some of the reasons that um, should have been alluded to earlier, um, and simply the reality that uh, Russia is a great power and uh, has a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. Great, thanks. Scott, how about you? I think the big asterisk has to be, and it's, it's an undecided question, something we have to wait to see a little bit yet, is, is whether this is a high watermark uh, for the role of economic leverage in international affairs, kind of more broadly. Again, like this is the big test, right? This is the biggest fish against which we're applying this big set of weapons. I don't know why I'm mixing fish and weapons metaphors, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, it's the, the, the most ambitious use we've ever made of the most ambitious set of tools we've ever used in this sort of context. And it can kind of go two ways. One can be that it ultimately proves successful the Russian people or Vladimir Putin himself, some combination of the two, decide this isn't worth it. We are, even if we try and get some sort of half victory in Ukraine, ultimately going to find a way to reintegrate with the global economy, have a quality of life that at least some Russians enjoyed for the last 
couple decades, uh, which are part of the global economy, all the amenities that come with that. And other countries are going to follow suit. China's going to decide as it kind of has so far, at least in this conflict, that it's not willing to buck the international system, alienates international economic ties in favor of supporting this effort. And the number of countries, because a lot of the world really is in the middle on this, they, they haven't actually joined the sanctioned efforts, but they often kind of are, uh, or economic actors within them are kind of compelled to go along with them because of their own economic ties to the United States and to the West. You know, they kind of go along with this road and say, all right, there's still just one international economic system. And the other possibility is, is that this is actually the high watermark. And then from here on out, those other major powers that see themselves as off frequently enough in opposition to the United States and its allies are going to try and develop a parallel system and begin to disengage. It's going to be a multi-year process. It's never going to be hundred percent, you know, Global economic integration happens for very real economic reasons that benefit a lot of people and influence uh, around the world. But that doesn't mean there isn't a strategic reason that some countries may want, want to avoid it, uh, particularly if they're prioritizing the, that issue set, which is they are more in conflict with the rest of the world. I think some of the new doom saying around the use of economic sanctions is overstated. People often say, well, every new set of sanctions, eventually one of these is going to tip us off a cliff. But if any set of sanctions was to tip us off the cliff or shift the momentum uh, away from global economic interdependence towards in different directions, this might very well might be it because of the sheer scope and ambition uh, and the nature of the target here. So we'll have to wait and see. I suspect this will be a notable asterisk uh, in the history of economic sanctions generally one way or the other. I just don't think we know which, which the story is going to be yet. Right. Thank you. Todd, what's your asterisk? I don't know if it's so much an asterisk, but I think it's a, um, an important question that's going to come out of this on how the Geneva Conventions and the Law of Armed Conflict, uh, are they still relevant or how they should be applied or should they be changed in the information you know, warfare arena you know, that we're now facing? You've seen the videos that uh, the Ukrainian government, I think, uh, but largely just individual citizens or groups have put up on social media of Russian prisoners of war, captured Russian prisoners, the videos of them, you know, the Ukrainian citizens allowing the soldiers to call home on their cell phones to tell their mothers that they've been captured, that they are in Ukraine. They captured, you know, soldiers, again, the videos being shown, you know, all around the world. And of course, Article 13 of the Third Geneva Convention, right, requires or states that prisoners of war must at all times be protected, particularly against acts of violence or intimidation and against insults and public curiosity. Uh, Up until this war, I think even right now, most people would agree that displaying photos of prisoners of war that can be identified, right, showing their face and showing them and having them speak is a violation of Article 13. However, it is very effective propaganda. Right, showing the world that these are in fact Russian soldiers, showing the Russian population that their soldiers are being captured but are being treated well. You know, we we typically think of this prohibition in light of kind of what North Vietnam did, right, and the, uh, to captured pilots parading them through the streets so citizens can throw things at them, could beat them, then torturing them and putting them on video, making them confess they've committed war crimes. But is this any different? If so, how? So you know. Does it apply just to the state party? You know, does under the uh, common article one, does the state party have an obligation to ensure respect for the conventions, right? By by somehow, you know, avoiding or prohibiting uh, individuals in the country from from displaying those images. So I think that's uh, 
that's going to be a good law school question, a law exam question uh, coming out of this and seeing how this kind of plays out in the development in, in that one specific area uh, as a result of this conference. Okay, thanks. And Shaman, take us home. What's your interest? Well, so I, I am the author of an international law uh, treatise that I just revised last year. And the prior edition in the sort of looking forward chapter, I talked about global pandemics. This is obviously before 2019. Uh, in this latest edition, the things that I emphasized included uh, the rise of authoritarian and populist regimes and corruption. Uh, and so even though we haven't talked explicitly about either of those things, I do think that the current war should maybe draw those of us in the international law and national security field to study some of those phenomena more closely. And again, particularly the, the Twitterati, and I you know, count myself among those probably go out of our lanes a little bit too often and, and we should uh, we should collaborate rather than you know, appoint ourselves the expert of everything. But I, I do think that this democratization that we've talked about, right, to, to come back to technology, speaking about staying in my lane, is something that is really going to challenge, continue to challenge these relationships. And the example that Todd just mentioned of you know, to what extent is the, both in terms of state responsibility, to what extent is Ukraine responsible under international law for the acts of individuals who may be publicizing these photos. I think, you know, getting the degree of international consensus we had around the Geneva Conventions would be very difficult if we tried to start from scratch, which I know is not what you were suggesting. Um, so perhaps it's more a question of, of interpretive gloss in light of new situations. Um, but certainly those conversations are, are very important to have to sort of maintain this idea that standards apply, um, not in some sort of whataboutism or, you know, we need to point the finger at Ukraine for something too, but in a genuine sense of, you know, what are uh, the legitimate or lawful and illegitimate or unlawful ways uh, of trying to win hearts and minds uh, in the midst of a, a deadly conflict. So uh, I think that, again, I, I we all probably have a bit of discomfort kind of even speaking um, in such hypothetical and forward-looking terms um, when, uh, you know, the escalation of the assault on Donbass, I think, is, is literally ongoing as we're recording. By the time this is released, who knows what other atrocities will have been revealed. But I, as I told my international law students when we wrapped up our semester yesterday, uh, for me, I think what all of these discussions bring home is uh, we're better off having these frameworks than not having them. Uh, we're better off being able to think through these different difficult questions uh, than just sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And uh, I think in the technology sphere, you know, we, we are going to see an additional need for lawyers and law students to engage with these questions, to partner with folks who actually understand the technical side uh, of, of all of these different kinds of operations to figure out uh, the role that law can play uh, in charting the various options available to policymakers in these really, really difficult circumstances. Great, thank you so much. All right, well, I think we will wrap there. We have covered an awful lot of ground. So thank you, Brian, Scott, Todd, and Shimen. Thank you to Georgetown Law for hosting and to the National Security Law Society. Um, for inviting us and hope all of you enjoyed it. Thanks very much. 
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Our next event, taking place next Thursday, April 28th, will include an expert panel discussing the Electoral Count Act that governs how electoral votes are counted in each presidential election. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.